My name is Dr. Stephanie Powell, and I am the Human Trafficking Chair for the Western Area of the Lynx Incorporated. I am also the National President and Director of Law Enforcement Training at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. During this podcast, you will learn the harsh reality of a subject that is happening here in the United States. In fact, it is hiding in plain sight in hotels, motels, nail and hair salons, agriculture, and yes, on our city streets. Human trafficking victims can be found in many places, schools, churches, foster placement, and that's just a name of few. Sadly enough, no one is immune. Therefore, it could be happening to someone close to you. You see, traffickers don't respect boundaries. The purpose of this podcast is not to scare you, but to educate and motivate you to help combat human trafficking. The Western Area Leadership of the Lynx Incorporated recognizes the tenants involving human trafficking. Therefore, our call to action is to encourage 70% of the Western Area chapters from Alaska to Texas to assemble victim comfort bags for their local nonprofit organizations as well as law enforcement agencies. We are also asking them to educate their communities on the public health and legislative impact of human trafficking on the African-American community through workshops, webinars, and podcasts. It is my hope that you will learn and become motivated to work within your community to combat human trafficking. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Make the Connection to End Human Trafficking podcast, a three-part series sponsored by the Greater Denton County Chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. I'm your host, Kim Whitaker. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation on human trafficking. Our goal is to create awareness and advocacy for this very common community concern that is often unknown. And today, we're pleased to have one of the experts on this topic, Abby Germer, Executive Director of Refuge for Women North Texas. We're going to be talking about support for survivors of human trafficking and the assistance they may need to move forward. So, Abby, thank you so much for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Tell us a little about Refuge for Women, the work you do, the survivors you encounter, and how we can make a difference. Absolutely. So, first of all, I work with Refuge for Women, and we are a long-term residential healing program. Um, We can serve survivors for up to two years as they work through our two-year program. Those two years are broken into two different components, if you will. Our first year, we focus on programming, healing, trauma-informed care, counseling, and just really trying to rebuild the identities of the women that we serve that have been stripped from them. Mm -hmm. And then after that first year, they complete our program and they can move into what we refer to as transitional living. And in our transitional living house, they do learn how to they put into practice really what they learned while they were going through program. And so what that looks like is they are working and are going to school. They are more living independently while still under our care. And they're able to learn healthy rhythms of life before they are fully independent um, going out onto their own. 
And so a little bit about myself and how I got involved um, with the organization. Trafficking became a huge desire of mine in 2009 when I found myself serving in the middle of Mumbai, India in a red light district. And so for me, I went on a mission trip, learned about what trafficking was. And like many people thought it was something that was happening in third world countries. And I spent a lot of time and resources raising funds and awareness stateside and then going back overseas and doing women's conferences and just doing different stuff over there. Um, and, but then the Lord really opened my eyes that we have our own problem here in our own backyard. And so one of the things that I always share is there's a lot of ways to get involved, but I always advocate that you need to find what your strengths are and what you're comfortable with. And so I laugh a lot because I'm not a frontline girl and our residents will definitely agree going out and doing outreach on the streets at two o'clock in the morning is not something that I'm, it's not my gig and that's okay, but I can love you long, hard, strong and slow and low. And so at the time I couldn't find any long-term residential programs in the, in the Metroplex back when we started in 2015. And so I came across this organization, Refuge for Women, um, we're actually a national organization and they were looking at expanding their services and they were looking at possibly North Texas being one of the, the next locations. And so been serving with them since, and it is definitely one of the greatest things that I am super grateful to be a part of. I love that. And I, I really like that you said, you know, I can love them. And I, it's, you know, I have to imagine that having um, gone through such a horrific ordeal for many uh, uh, of these young people that that's a, a really important thing to have is love. Tell us a, a little bit about who, who the survivors are that you see. Oh, absolutely. So specifically in our program, we serve females that are 18 and older, um, and they come from all over the United States. So another frequently asked question is, um, that we get asked is how many of the women that we serve are actually residents of the United States and a hundred percent of them are. Um, and so one of the things that sets Refuge for Women apart is having a national collaboration um, is when we work locally with law enforcement and different frontline agencies. If it's not safe for a lady to stay local, then we can relocate her to a different location um, and then vice versa. And so when residents come into our program, most of the time they are from being relocated from a different location. Um, but we do have residents that do stay local and, and, and go through our program locally. We don't cap off at an age. Our oldest graduate is 54 locally. Um, and so definitely our program was one of the first things in her whole life that she had ever completed. And it was a tremendous accomplishment for her. Um, and then we recently have a resident that just completed our two-year program and moved out on her own. And she came in a week after she turned 18 because she qualified for our program. So we definitely have an opportunity to hear a lot of different scenarios and walk with a lot of different stories. But at the root of it, there's just a lot of sweet brokenness and we get to get to see the hope and the healing part. I always say trafficking is kind of the Debbie Parr subject, but what I love about what we get to do in our space is we get to see the redemption and the hope and the healing um, that can come after living such a traumatic experience. 
that's that's very encouraging to hear because you're right it is a downer topic but it is you know one of the things that i think we realize is so critically important and it's important to talk about and there's there's no too much of it um when we're discussing you know survivors and and helping them along their way so tell me paint a picture for me and tell me what that process what that recovery process looks like you know what a young woman might experience you know when she comes into the program through graduation. And I'm curious also how many women have gone through your program? You know, that's that that's a really great question. And right now, I think one of the things that I always like to make sure we point out too is that our program's two years long and we don't have more than six beds in our long-term and our transitional living house. Because one of the things in working with survivors is that the process is highly, highly relational and very intentional. And so serving programs, the way our program is, is that we're, we're set up to serve an individual and to keep the houses run like a home. And so to date, I know that we have served over 55 women since we have opened. I don't have the exact number, but I feel very confident that I can say more than 55. Um, but just to paint a picture of what it looks like when we get a new resident into our program, um, it usually comes from a referral from a, an outside organization. And so what that would look like is we do work with Department of Homeland Security, law enforcement, other frontline agencies, behavioral health hospitals, hospitals, just other nonprofits that are out doing the outreach that I said, I, I, I that's not my gifting. Um, and then we have a collaboration. And so we refer clients to each other. And so all of our residents come by referral. And one of the um, other things is the way our program is currently set up is that our residents have to be clean and be able to pass a drug test for at least seven to 10. They have to be clean for at least seven to 10 days before we can take them into our program. Because we are set up long-term, we don't detox currently at the, the, the safe house that we have. So I'm just going to share a story of a recent graduate um, where she came in. And so she was, like I said, a week after she turned 18 around there, um, she came into our program and very young. I'm not going to share her, her story story. I'm going to share the program part of it. Um, but when she came to our program, she didn't have a GED, didn't have a driver's license, didn't have a lot of those basic necessities that any 18-year-old would be receiving at that time in their life. And so she was a referral from a hospital um, situation. And when she came into our program, we were able to just meet her where she was at. One of the things that a lot of our residents struggle with and is one of the biggest components of our healing program is including them in their mental illness. And so a lot of our residents suffer from various degrees of mental illness, and that is oftentimes the side effect of the trauma that they have experienced. And so um, this resident coming into our program, like I said, she came with not completing high school, not having a driver's license or anything like that. And for the first two weeks when they come in, we don't really expect too much of them. They need to get acclimated. They need to I say start to figure that they are in a safe space. Oftentimes it takes three to six months truly for that to settle in. Not this particular girl, but it is common for residents to be very nervous and anxious when they come into our program. So extreme social anxiety and paranoia is something that we just have to continue to be consistent 
and showing up and doing what we say we do and being who we say we are so that stability and trust can start to be built. They might sleep with their tennis shoes on in the bed, sleep in the closet with the light on. We give them the space that they need in order to feel comfortable and safe, obviously with the goal that that's not how they're going to be, you know, at the end of the year-long journey. Um, So we let them have like a two-week acclimation period, getting used to the staff, volunteers, the schedule of the day. All of our residents, their full-time job is Monday through Friday, 8 to 4. And that is when they work the program. And so during those times, they are going through over 30 books of curriculum, um, learning on how to have healthy relationships, healthy boundaries. Some of our residents struggle with substance abuse. So we have curriculum that addresses those specific issues, counseling once a week, medical appointments, anything and everything that goes into that portion. That is their job Monday through Friday from eight to four. And then after they've been in the program for about six months, we really start to take them from looking at the past to maybe looking at the present and starting to put our eye on the price for the future. At this point, we start to do different types of skill set testing, discovering what they enjoy, who they are, what they're good at. Um, Some people like numbers, and that's really awesome. Some people are very creative. Uh, Some people would never want to go wait tables in a restaurant because it's too noisy and chaotic, but some would just love to go work with puppies all day, you know? And so really just trying to really start to identify who they are, what their, their talents and their abilities are, and then really start to get their thoughts moving in towards a direction of hope in the future with stability in some type of job or continuing higher education to fulfill you know, what, what they enjoy doing. That whole process takes a whole year and it only took me two minutes to tell you about it, but there's a lot of other things that go into it. Um, and so in this particular situation with this, this graduate that we had by the time she, she's was incredibly smart and had a huge, huge passion for serving young children. She started to discover that some type of degree in early childhood development would be a desire for her. And so when she came to our program, she didn't have her GED, but we were able to get her GED within the first 30 days of her being there. And she technically graduated high school the same year that she was supposed to graduate high school because she got her high school um, GED schoolwork done at the same time and then focused on a lot of her program work, trauma healing, And then we started to implement her going to school. And so about eight months into the program, we got her signed up at a local junior college. In that time, she got her driver's license as well and graduated our program at the end of the first year, Uh, moved into transitional living and has completed her associate's degree this past December. Now still currently working in early childhood development and has just purchased her own first car and moved out into her own place this past weekend. And so, or a couple weekends ago. So anyways, when you ask what is our program set up to do, that would be the ideal story to share in all of the the ups and the downs that come through through that healing process for them. That's fantastic. I, I'm sure there are a lot of ups and downs, but at the end of the day, it sounds like this was quite a success story, or at least, uh, uh, you know, she's on her way. 
She is and, on and has and has accomplished quite a lot. Yeah. I can hear that you really create a sense of community and provide a place of comfort for those survivors. So I'm wondering about um how important you talked about some of your partners, but how important those partners are to the process and, and helping those young ladies get um, to where they need to be. Oh man, collaboration in this line of work is the only way that we are going to continue to make a difference. And so, like I said, being involved in this arena for the last seven years and just meeting a lot of really phenomenal organizations out there, it's just vital. And so building relationships with law enforcement, other frontline agencies, not only that, but even from a service standpoint to survivors, um, when you're looking for placement into programs, I'm just gonna be honest, like some people don't need referrals. And so um, when you find the tried and true and you find organizations that do what they say they do and serve what they say they serve and produce the outcomes that are there, that truly are there to have the trauma-informed care, the staffing and the training that's necessary um, to be able to serve the, the women exactly where they are and then produce the results that they say they're going to. Um, relationship is probably one of the most important factors in all of this. That's great. So, um, and it sounds like you've got some incredible partners that help you make it happen. So that's really, that's good to know that's happening in our community and that's um, that's very encouraging. So tell me about some of the challenges, because I'm sure that there are challenges that come along with the work that you do. Um, so tell me a little bit about some of your, some of the challenges you face, and maybe even and maybe even some of the 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 you know the people, advocates, organizations that help you overcome some of those. Okay, yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, a lot of our residents and the women that we serve do have a component of mental health that comes from the result of trauma. And so one of our biggest challenges is finding adequate health care to be able to meet those needs. In Texas, our residents don't qualify for Medicaid and because they don't have children in custody under the age of 18. And so for us as an organization, we've had to turn away some residents that needed to come into our program because we knew that the medical services that they were needing, we were not necessarily going to be the best fit because of our lack of um, health insurance and, and medical needs that we've been able, that we would be able to provide. Um, however, I will also say in the same breath, we have come in collaboration with some amazing partners in the community. And it's things that we take for granted, like, Kim, you have a pair of glasses on and, you know, we have found an optometrist that sees our residents and they have for three years. And if they need glasses and they need to go in and get seen, then they allow and service our residents to come in and be able to get glasses. Um, I actually took a resident in two weeks ago and when she came into our program, even just to fill out the paperwork she had to pull the papers up basically to her nose to be able to read what was on there. And so to have those types of relationships in the community is vital. Um, there's a dentist that works with us. She services our residents when it comes to their dental care. And then we do collaborate with an organization called Health Services of North Texas, and they have complete medical care there. They have behavioral health, well woman, and general practice. And so 
they definitely are able to see and serve our our, our clients and we work really well together with them. Um, also, a huge component is to find adequate counselors that are truly up to date on the m- different modalities that is definitely necessary in, in, in working with trauma victims. And so having an excellent care of counseling team, um, we have one of the best. Honestly, we have five to six of them that work with us. They all have different practices from EMDR to equine therapy with EMDR, just I'm going to tell you like it is counseling, you know, and and we try to pair our residents with who we feel like what what their need is and then the personality that they have. And um, when we first opened, we had one person that came to the house and everybody saw one person and that wasn't working well. And so we were able to form this team of counselors, but counseling without insurance is not cheap. And so um, these counselors we have, they work with us at a reduced cost, but they provide high, high quality, high end services. And even when we made the switch in the counseling that we provided, we have seen a greater success in our our, our residents. And so, so when you talk about challenges, it's hard for me because I feel like, you know, our challenges, we have solutions, but there's still on, always ongoing challenges. Well, that's good you that's good you mentioned that though, because I think you've mentioned several things that, you know, I didn't think about glasses or dental care or some of the, you know, we always think about items that people need, clothes or things like that. But I mean the the need is great and it's widespread and there's actually lots of opportunity for the community to support. And so that was yeah. I was thinking about what do survivors need? You know, I think yeah. it's a much broader than we might think of. Well, I have, I have something, I mean, like, think about you going to the DMV when your driver's license needs to be renewed. And if we've all taken our 16 year old or 15 year old to go get their permit and their driver's license and what a pain it is to find the documents that are needed um, for them to get their driver's license. But we serve adult women who have no bills, no social security card, no birth certificate, no driver's license or government issued ID, because that's a form of control from their traffickers. And so they often show up with all of this. And so we've had to build relationships, strategic relationships with airlines, because how do you fly somebody to a different location with limited identification documents? And then even greater than that, how do you show up to get one when you don't even have a bill in your name? And so we have really had to work closely with different government agencies as well to be able to help us get just those simple documents back for them. But it's genuinely one of my favorite times because when they get an ID in their hand that has their real name with their real picture and they get their birth certificate and their social security card, it is such a physical example of what the heart of our program is. And it's to restore their God-given identity so that they can have a hope in a future. And so, you know, when you think about the hurdles and the things that we do take for granted and the complexity, you know, of those simple items, it's a labor of love, but man, it, it, it causes, it does bring great celebration in those moments as well. I love that. That warms my heart a lot. <laughs> I think some of the other challenges for sure is that there's just not enough placement. You know, when you ask what we can do as a community, like I said earlier, find the tried and true in the organizations that are boots on the ground and and doing what they say they do and really are going after it and support them. 
whether that's financially, whether that is with your time, whether if that is with your professional resources, whether you're an attorney um, in the medical field, tutor, anything like that. It takes all of us locking arms to, to make a difference. And so there's just not um, enough placement, unfortunately. The, the demand for placement in programs is still greater than what is out there. Um, so that is something that I definitely um, would say is a huge challenge. And then really right now in our area, and I hopefully when you talk to Captain Barrett, a, emergency crisis placement is, is a huge gap in services that we have. And so when Homeland Security or uh, law enforcement are going out and doing their outreaches, when they come across somebody that is in need of placement, um, there is very, very few beds that can take somebody in immediately. And so um, that is one of the goals that we have in the next two years is to open a crisis emergency placement because it is a huge gap in our area. And so again, if you know people that have resources and funding and property and homes or anything like that, we need your help um, to be able to provide a safe place so that these women at two o'clock in the morning that have just, you know, run away from a, a very um, volatile and dangerous place um, have a safe space to go to be stabilized and, and, and seen about. So that would just be a, a couple of the challenges that I have to throw out there. Well, and then you're, you are, you're doing a lot to overcome those challenges that, and definitely meeting the need. But as we talked about, unfortunately, this is a topic that continues to grow. It's something that's growing, it sounds like, in our community. And I, I want to talk just a little bit about, because when we talk about what survivors need, I noticed that online you have a survivor store. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about what, what that is exactly. Describe it and, you know, tell us about it. Oh my goodness. So I love it. So, you know, it's called Survivor Made and our residents as they work through our program have an opportunity to create goods. And so two of the lines that we have is we have candles and we have leather goods. And so our residents as they are working through the program actually make these products. And what happened was when COVID came in 2020, you know, shut down the whole world, we um, had two residents in our program that were supposed to be going to work. And at that phase in the program, the curriculum dies down so that they can start going back to work part-time. But we didn't, we couldn't send them out to get work because everything was not open. And so we had collaborated with our, our national location and said, hey, can we kind of jump on this bandwagon with you guys? They were making candles. I said, can we, can Texas start doing leather goods? Because these residents were also not handling being stuck inside and not being able to leave well, um, well, um, as, as I think a lot of us um, probably weren't. And so from that, we started this leather line and this social enterprise initiative. And it has been one of the greatest things because not only do they learn a trade while they're working through the program, so even when they're done with the program, they have a skill to fall back on. Um, but another thing is that when our residents were going to apply for jobs at the end of a program and they have either no work history or a three-year gap of work, you know, nothing to put on a resume going in for an interview, this also was putting something on their resume that showed that they had held a steady job for the past year. Um, and through that social enterprise, we also did different 
trainings and classes. Some of our board members would come in and talk about what it looks like to be a good employee, dress attire, mannerisms, professionalism. And then they were also the therapeutic aspect of it is creating and making something with your hands. And so it really is like, I mean, if you can't tell, I love it. I love it. I love it. And so if you go to our website, survivormade.org, um, you can do some shopping there. Um, but just know that all of our products there are handmade by our residents as they work through our program. And then you def you really genuinely are providing an employment opportunity for a much, much greater cause and a much, much greater purpose. So I love it. Shopping is one of my favorite things to do. So <laughs> we'll definitely spread the word about the website because that, that's I, I just I love it. You know, and it's it's a very meaningful gift for you to give someone. But if we realize just how much of an impact it makes for those well, survivors. It's quality too. Like the leather that we use for our leather goods, we work with Tandy Leather out of Fort Worth. So they're a local leather supplier and they last forever. So that's good. So let me ask you this about um, survivors. You talked about it's a two year program. Yeah. Do you have the graduates who come back in support or that, you know, there's a continuation or do you stay connected with them? Oh, absolutely. So just because the two the program is two years doesn't mean that when that's over, it is a lifelong journey and a lifelong relationship. And I mean, honestly, it, it, it's 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 a hard, long road to recovery. You know, I would love to say that we've had residents graduate our program and they it was all sunshine and rainbows. But unfortunately, that's that's not the truth. We've had residents choose to leave our program and within a week, they had OD'd and passed away. And those are really, really, really challenging times for our staff. Um, but we also know that our mission is just to plant seeds and it's up to the Lord to to water them and, and, and bring it to fruition. And so um, it really has um, strengthened our perspective on 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 our, our jobs and our roles. Um, but further than that, um, like I said, when our residents relocate here, um, and they form community here. Um, they go to two support group meetings a week. They go to um, a place of worship on Sunday mornings and they go to support group meetings. And so they, we have volunteers that come in and they really do restart a life here and we do become their community. Uh, one of the things that we started this past year, it's called a survivor support group, and it's much like an um, AA meeting or an NA meeting, but it's for survivors of sex, sexual exploitation. And it is a touch point for our graduates that are no longer living in our program to come back once a week and have a weekly support, but it's also a desire for our current transitional living residents to be kind of held accountable a little bit in, 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 in walking out their, their new ways of thinking. Um, and then we also have women that come to the survivor support group that are still actively, whether they're one of the common terminology is they, when, when you are trafficked or being, um, in, in prostitution, it's called being in the life. And so, um, we do have women that come to our survivor support group on a weekly basis that are, still actively in the life, but they are looking for hope and healing. And it's it's a great opportunity for our residents and graduates to share their story of hope and, and put them in a space of leadership, but also give the ones that live in the area a place to come back to on a weekly basis, just to make sure that we're, we're staying connected. So 
That's great. I'm I'm glad to hear that you're you you continue the mission that it's really it doesn't end to two years and that those survivors have, you know, a long term opportunity because you're right, you know, life is ups and downs. Um yeah. and so that's an incredible support, I'm sure. Yeah. So tell me what is it what else should we know about survivors? You know, and I'm thinking about just for someone who's listening and you know, we know that we can shop, we can shop your Amazon wish list and lots of things we can do, but what else should we know just in going about our everyday life, um, know about survivors or, you know, the people that are in your facility or even other programs that, you know, we might be able to make a difference. You know, you think about random acts of kindness or things like that, but what else could we, would we do to, to what should we know? Oh man. Um, I really feel like my answer on this, what you should know about survivors is, uh, I'm going to go about this two ways. So one of them is what you should know about survivors is that anybody can truly be a victim. And so educating and empowering yourself about the truths of trafficking and what that looks like is really vital to each of us in just regular normal, whatever that is, day living, to be able to see it and identify it and be able to report it is huge. We have a Truth About Trafficking Awareness event that we hold twice a year, being Anti-Trafficking Awareness Month. We have an event coming up next week. And then also we have another one that we'll host in September. And so finding awareness events, you can go to our website, refugeforeman.org and select our North Texas location. And there will be information on there about how you can come and and learn the truth about trafficking. Um, And so that would be the one thing I would say is just knowing that anybody can be a victim. Um, And then the other part is they're they're truly all around us. Um, One of our graduates shared at an event and one of the things that she really challenged the community about was that they had, she she goes grocery shopping, you know, she goes out to dinner, she's dating, she has the sweetest boyfriend in the world. Um, and so oftentimes I just think, um, just as a society as a whole, just to be mindful of those around us and, 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 and to be kind. Whether that's there's a survivor standing next to us, life is hard. People are have hard days and good days. And so I think another thing I would say is that, and, and, and don't stereotype it. Survivors come from all different socioeconomic statuses, all different races, ethnicities, and anything and everything in between. And so don't stereotype what you think a, a victim of trafficking would look like. And, and certainly don't stereotype what you think a trafficker looks like as well. Um, because they are not driving around in a white van kidnapping kids off the corner. So they're intentionally building relationship and they could be both male and female. And um, and so I just think we've got to be a voice in this in this fight for them. That's great. So we're talking to Abby Germer, Executive Director of Refuge for Women, North Texas. Thank you so much for sharing these stories um, and helping us learn a lot more about Refuge for Women, which is such an important resource in our community for survivors. I think it's 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 been great to hear from you today. And I have one final question that I'm going to be asking all our podcast guests. 
And that is, what can we do as individuals and as a community to stop human trafficking? Educate yourself. Become aware of, of the realities. It, 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 it truly is happening all around us. And so plug into local organizations find materials that you can read and and just become aware of what's going on and then volunteer your time and, and share your resources. It takes all time, talents, and treasures to make a difference in, in this fight. And so um, if this is something that's compelling and you feel like you want to learn more about, reach out to me. I'm happy to meet you for a cup of coffee and answer any questions that you have. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been very informative and and what I hear from you that that makes me so inspired um, is your passion about the survivors that come to Refuge for Women, your passion for wanting to see them succeed. And I love that, you know, it's all grounded in your faith and your love for others. Um, and so I hear that. And I know that um, the folks who will listen will hear that as well. And we just really, really appreciate all that you and your staff are doing to help um, end human trafficking. And also appreciate that you're really wanting to be a part of the solution and you're not letting any of the obstacles or challenges that come your way deter your your mission, that you stand firm and that you are always on the side of good on this topic. And so we appreciate that. Thanks again. So you've been listening to the Make a Connection to End Human Trafficking podcast. It's a three-part podcast sponsored by the Greater Den County Chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. I know you have ingested everything you heard today. And for some, this topic may remind you of someone you may know. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. It's a toll-free call, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is one 888-373-7888 to speak to a specially trained anti-trafficking hotline advocate. You may also email them at help at humantraffickinghotline.org. The one thing I want you to remember is the basic definition of human trafficking. And what it does, it pertains to someone who is forced to have sex for money or something of value against his or her will. They also could be under the age of 18, engaging in commercial sex, and is being forced to work and perform services against her or his will. So please, don't hesitate. If you see something, say something.